Hi, you guys. This is the Truth About Work podcast. I'm Liz Ryan, and our deal is we talk about work. Our company and our movement are both called Human Workplace, and our mission is to reinvent work for people. So it means tactical, practical, day-to-day, on-the-ground advice about job hunting or doing your job or thriving at your job or figuring out what kind of job you want or starting your own business, being a leader or an HR person, whatever. And looking at the bigger picture, what is wrong with work and how do we fix it? Because, you know, uh, there's a lot wrong with it. The model was defective to begin with, the model on which our modern, and I mean 150-year-old, but but still very much ensconced, you know, our modern model of work is based on a lot of broken ideas about what it means to have a job, what it means to get a paycheck, what it means to be a manager and to be managed and so on. Real old, uh, crusty, industrial revolution ideas that don't suit this knowledge workplace, this knowledge economy at all, or any economy. Right now we have a divide in the U.S. between essential workers basically trodden underfoot. You know, you will work the schedule that we assign and no, we don't have protective equipment and you won't get uh, of hazard pay or a bonus for working through coronavirus, COVID-19, or if you do, you know, we, we, we will take that away at the first opportunity. Right now we have a huge resurgence in cases, an uptick in cases, new cases of COVID-19 in the United States. It's, it's horrible. The graphs are horrible what's happening. And still, uh, essential workers are essential in name only because they don't get treated. They don't get paid fairly. They don't all have paid sick time. If they literally get sick from this infectious disease, they're not paid to go home and get better. So it's criminal and really tells us uh, in the most powerful and visceral way that something about work is badly, badly broken. This isn't right for anybody. The folks who are not essential workers physically going to work every day are mainly working from home and wondering when they're going to go back to their workplace. It's not their decision. And by the way, the the U.S. agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, has no enforceable guidelines for employers who want to bring people back to the workplace. It's up to them. Just come back. I remember when I lived in Chicago and I was a young HR person, I learned about the robber barons there. And... Um, Gosh, I've forgotten which one was buried in an ornate coffin, but encased in a 10-foot concrete block so no one would deface the grave. That's how badly the employees hated this guy. I don't want to get it wrong. Was it Potter? Let's see. Was it Pullman? We're going to find out. Or was it? We're going to find out who it was. Uh, talk amongst yourself. Uh, gotta find out that's how much this guy was uh, was not um, beloved by his employees yeah George Pullman here he is 1831 to 1897 the age of the robber barons he looks like a pleasant enough sort Uh, American engineer and industrialist designed and manufactured the Pullman sleeping car and founded a company town called Pullman still there as a relic on the south side of Chicago for the workers. And, um, you know, 
He halved wages and required workers to spend long hours at the plant that did not lower the price of rents or goods in his company town. He gains presidential support, you guys, by Grover Cleveland, president of the U.S. at the time, for the use of federal military troops, which left 30 strikers dead in the violent suppression of workers there to end the Pullman strike of 1894. And, and look also, okay, Wikipedia, we love you, Wikipedia, but listen to this. He gained presidential support by Grover Cleveland for the use of federal military troops, which left the use the use of federal military troops inexplicably left 30 strikers dead. I mean, come on. He asked Grover Cleveland to put the insurrection down by killing his employees. There you go. Simple, easy peasy. A national commission was appointed to investigate the strike, which included assessment of operations of the company town. They used to pay you in script. That this is not Wikipedia now, this is lore from me, that they, they would pay you in script and you could only use it at the inflated prices in the company store. They had company church, so gross. In 1898, the Supreme Court of Illinois ordered the Pullman Company to divest itself of the town, which became a neighborhood of the city of Chicago. But I want to get to the part about um, the his grave, because that's kind of intense. Okay, so I wish you would read this on Wikipedia. The whole thing is interesting. Um... But uh, in 1885, Richard Ely wrote in Harper's Weekly that the power exercised by Otto von Bismarck, known as the unifier of modern Germany, was utterly, in quotes, utterly insignificant when compared with the ruling authority of the Pullman Palace Car Company in Pullman, end quote. So in other words, even the, um, the Otto von Bismarck was nothing insignificant compared to this guy, Robert Barron, who runs these people's lives. And here's a quote from alleged Pullman employees living in the Pullman-owned town. They said, we are born in a Pullman house, fed from the Pullman shops, taught in the Pullman school, catechized in the Pullman church, and when we die, we should go to Pullman hell. So this is, uh, we didn't get to the grave. Are we, is they going get to get there? Probably. Burial. Fearing that, fearing that some of his former employees or other labor supporters might try to dig up his body, his family arranged for his remains to be placed in a lead-lined mahogany coffin, which was then sealed inside a block of concrete. At the cemetery, a large pit had been dug at the family plot. At its base and walls were 18 inches of reinforced concrete. The coffin was lowered and covered with asphalt and tar paper. More concrete was poured on top, followed by a layer of steel rails bolted together at right angles and another layer of concrete. The entire burial process took two days. His monument, featuring a Corinthian column flanked by curved stone benches, was designed by Solon Spencer Beeman, the architect of the company town of Pullman. So, you know, I don't know the circumstances of, of George Pullman's death, and I don't know if he knew he was about to leave this earth, but imagine that's your legacy. Make sure you use the extra strong concrete on my coffin. Robber barons. And we have some of that going on today. It's real. I'm laughing, but it's one of the biggest problems in our country, right alongside COVID-19 and what's happening in our country politically, obviously, and Black Lives Matter and, and you know, the, the, the problem um, the unequal treatment of black people, indigenous people, people of color, and, and, and law enforcement's role in that, and mass incarceration. We know about these um, overwhelming, overarching problems. And, but what do they have in common? Institutions are coming under fire, and they're, and they're 
um, foundations are crumbling and cracking and getting old and all this stuff from the industrial revolution people are looking at and saying it doesn't work anymore it doesn't work to warehouse people school to prison pipeline and say that'll be fine we'll have more incarcerated people than any other industrialized nation by a mile for tiny offenses i just tweeted something about i think it was new york forgive me if i slime the new york city police department but you'll find it on twitter and see and it was something like 95% of jaywalking arrests were people of color, black people and people of color. Oh, and 87% of riding a bicycle on the sidewalk. Same thing, people of color. What do we know? Institutionalized racism, obviously. And sexism and ageism, but racism especially. And this is what we're kind of sort of trying to come to grips with now for the first time. So we have these big social and and political and philosophical you know, traumas and, 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 but also, um, you know, things being aired that should have been aired a long time ago. So that's great and healthy. And maybe there's positive change and, and evolution, revolution, reformation, reinvention that comes out of all this stuff. And it's, you know, uh, terrifying and, and daunting and stressful and exciting and hopeful. I hope, you know, at the same time, but also personally, we're in tumult. We don't have no visibility into the future. First time in my life and career that I had no, you know, I have ideas about what I think is going to happen. I don't think we're going to go back to something similar to what we've experienced thus far in the professional life and having to do with work and how a career fits into our life. I, I, I'm a big fan of UBI, Universal Basic Income. I don't see how we can avoid acknowledging the reality that it's just not going to match up perfectly, that everybody gets a good job, even good enough to support them and, and pay them what it costs to live with housing prices so so off kilter and so out of reach. So we have to, we have, we need a big reshuffling. And, you know, not everyone can work. And and what we have now, general assistance, is it's it's nothing. It's horrible. It's It's an insult. It doesn't work. It doesn't function. Obviously, our healthcare system doesn't function. Education, rife with problems from any perspective, not good for teachers, not good for students, not good for families, communities. So we're just looking at all of these institutions and saying, okay, they're all kind of broken in the same way. They outlive their usefulness, but we've been really, it's been really hard for us to deal with that and to talk frankly about what's broken, even in comparison to many other countries on earth. So... That's kind of what we're doing now. Our special focus here at Human Workplace is, of course, the workplace and what's broken and what can be fixed and why it's worth our time and energy to talk about that and understand it. And even what we can do personally in our own lives to deal with the changing workplace and our own you know, situation in life. But like I said, most of us have never faced this much uncertainty before and that translates right over into the workplace. And it means that what seemed secure before it just might not be secure. A friend of mine texted me the other day and told me that they had had lunch with a recruiter in San Francisco about six months ago. And that recruiter thought they might have a job for my friend. And so my friend was like, yeah, sure, you know, keep me posted. Use my resume if it seems like it's a good fit. And there was some emails back and forth, maybe a phone call, but nothing really Nothing really took hold of my friend, stayed at his current job. 
And so he's at that job and he got a, um, a text from, from this recruiter person that he knows, kind of friend in San Francisco, said, give me, give me a call. So he called and said, yeah, what's, what's happening? What's new with you? And he said, well, you know, I thought you were going to get that job from my client back a few months ago. It didn't work out. I've been keeping you in mind, you know, but, um, it turns out I have to look, I have to maybe leave my recruiting firm. Oh, why is that? Well, because they just decided that, you know, they're going to cut everybody's pay here and um, they're going to drastically change the terms of our employment because they feel like they can in this economic climate. They just feel like they can. They just announced this is what it is. This is what we're doing. It's like a dare. It's like, can you do better? And he'd been with the firm like four years. I was like, oh, well, who cares? This is a horrible story, but it's not something that you can't believe when you hear it and say, no, that could never happen. Testing, right? Testing bottoms. If you literally said, I do not care about retaining my current team. I literally do not care because I have other ways. I'll, I'll call their bluff. I have, I think I could hire other people to fill those jobs. And I think I could still make just as much money. And if you literally say, I do not care, you don't care. And we can be horrified and aghast and we should be. And there are political things that need to happen, right? Who we elect to office and we need to change employment law. We have to do all that stuff, right? That's critically important. The structure and the rules and the policies have to change. And at the same time, we all have to build our own little sort of survival kit and mentality that says, hey, weird stuff happens and I have to be ready to move. I have to be not just ready in terms of employable, and have a network and know who these local employers are or non-local employers that I would pursue or go after or reach out to if I needed to for my own health, for my own ability to sleep soundly at night, have to do all that. But I mainly, mainly more than anything, have to shift my mindset. You know, you get a job, you leave the job, you start a new job. Now, everything we've been taught since we were little kids, it's a team and you join the team and you do your best and you support the team. Of course, I want you to do that. I want you to be supported by the team. I want all that, but I don't want you in La La Land oblivious to what has happened and is still happening out in the workplace. I don't want you thinking that somehow your career is safe in the hands of anyone, anyone. You are such a CEO. That's a hard thing to take on board, as they say. You are such a CEO, but we just don't have the mentality totally set. And, and that's why I always tell folks when they're in any kind of reinvention, exploration, checking out things, you know, waking up from a stupor, which happens to us, this, 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 these awful events the last few months are waking us up to say, wow, I got to do this differently or think about my career, my income, you know, my sustenance and what I'm interested in, you know, differently. But what I tell them when they're in reinvention is go get a headshot, man. It doesn't have to be in a studio, especially these days. You go, you get your friend or your, your spouse, or your quarantine mate, your partner, whoever, yourself, and you take a nice picture that you like for your LinkedIn profile. I, I know not everyone has LinkedIn, but you know, assuming you do, why do I want you to take a new picture? Because it's just, this is the new me. And it might take weeks or months to feel comfortable with that new shot. Like, okay, I guess that's me now, but it's a process. We call it 
growing into your headshot. I know mine is old. I need a new one. Yeah, that's hypocritical. What are you going to do? Um, okay, I have a couple questions to answer. Oh, storytelling. Yeah, I'm going to read you something else. I already read about uh, Grover Cleveland and slime bag. George Pullman. Can you imagine? That was my life. Hey, I left a lot of money to my descendants. What are you hating on me for, Liz? Treated people like garbage, but that is the world in the Gilded Age. This is on our blog, uh, humanworkplace.com, and it's on the blog, and it's just a quick little thing called How to Convey Your Work Experience Through Storytelling. Q&A, and um, person says, I saw a PR job ad and sent in my marketing resume. The company recruiter emailed me and asked me to write back and describe my PR experience specifically. Couldn't they assume that if I can do marketing, I can do PR? So I said, write back and tell a story about how you came, saw, and conquered a PR challenge. You only need one story, but it has to include not just what you did, but how you helped your employer by doing it. Make it a juicy and quick but powerful story with tons of context. And then I gave this example. This is writing back to the recruiter. Hi, Gail. Thanks for your reply. I ran PR for Toontown Products just after they launched their online store. No one had heard of the company at that point. They had had no media attention at all. I got our CEO an interview on BizTV that tripled visits to our site. I spent the next year cultivating relationships with national media, getting radio and TV exposure, and helping Toontown grow from 600,000 to 5 million in sales in three years. The story is two teensy weensy paragraphs. It's a it is, they use that horrible phrase, results oriented, I hate it. Please take that out of your resume. It doesn't mean anything, but this is the result. I, it, and, and, and the reason it's powerful is because it says, oh, you want to know about me as a PR person? I hear that. You want to see me in your mind's eye doing PR? What was it like? You don't say, I had five years of experience with this and I was responsible for. No, anybody in the job would have been responsible for the stuff, but how did you do with that responsibility? So you lay it out. Like two people talking over coffee. Yeah, I went in. Nobody ever heard of these guys. They were tiny. It was a great product. I went in there. I got the CEO one interview that jump-started the thing. Biz TV, get the visits, stay in touch, build the, the message. TV, radio, the guy was good on the mic, and I jumped on that. And this is how PR people describe their credibility and expertise, not by saying, I did reports, I had a database. You understand what I'm saying? It's the power, the voltage in the story. And part of this process, stepping into your head, headshot and being in reinvention is reclaiming your own power, you guys, because bad jobs or bad job searches or tough life experience, they knock our power out of us. You know how this is. These last few months have knocked us all for a loop. It's really hard and stressful just getting through the day in all different ways. So we get knocked down and part of our process is building back up our strength, our fuel source. And part of that is claiming your stories. You did stuff, you did stuff. I used to do live workshops and people would say, I didn't do anything. I said, 
wrong. You did so many things, but we have not been told to claim our stories or see the power in them. Till we see the power in our own stories, you know, nobody's going to see it. We got to see it first. All right, you guys, we just got one more little anecdote. And that is, okay, Twitter, we're not going to go there. I'm going to paraphrase. A person wrote and said, I left an interview back in February because the interviewer was very rude and unprofessional. And it was obvious I didn't want the job. Should I still write a thank you note, though? No. You leave an interview, you're not leaving an interview or getting up from a Zoom call just for the heck of it. And bored. I want to go play video games. It'd be kind of cool if you did. Performance art. In that case, it's performance art. But um, no, you leave a video, an interview when you don't mind them knowing, nah, I don't want the job, which means rude and unprofessional to a degree that's like, are we? is this really happening? Unfortunately, it does happen and you have to be ready because I don't want you sitting there like a captive audience if it really gets gnarly. And it can. It can. Uh, back before COVID-19, when people were going out to physical job interviews, and of course, some people still do that now, um, I would regularly hear from people who said, I went to this place and it wasn't safe. It was not safe. The front door to the office was held open with like an industrial, you know, paint, huge paint can, and it was sketch, and I didn't know who was all there. No, no, you're not putting yourself in an unsafe situation. And if it's gross on a Zoom call or, or any kind of interview setting, coffee, uh-uh, boy, out of there. Because you know what? It doesn't take anything to run a job ad. What is a company? I have companies. What is a company? You, f- you, f- you fill out a piece of paper. It's online now. It's 50 bucks. I have a company. Anybody can place a job ad, you guys. doesn't mean they're real. doesn't mean they're reputable, ethical, or that you're safe with them. So you, you cannot uh, be too cautious thinking, yeah, sure, back in the day, real companies would pretty much be the only people that would place job ads, but that's not the case now. And I have looked at job ads and traced them back and all of the principals in the company on their website, you know, are there on the website with photos and bios, but not one of them had that company on their LinkedIn. Huh. Wasn't there. You know, it's probably alongside their full-time job. God bless the enterprising nature, but no, no, you don't have to go. And you can leave at any point and you can say, oh, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm so grateful to your time today. It's obvious it's not a good fit, and I'll just be running along, let you get back to your day. That's fine. But in general, getting up and leaving is a signal you don't want the job. So you don't have to send, you know, a um, a thank you note afterwards. You can say, you know, hey, life is long, and maybe our paths will cross again. It's not a horrible thing if you want to do that. But normally, you don't leave on, on a small, for a small reason. It's a pretty big statement, Right. But here's the thing. Let's say that happened to you. And this was the question that I was asked on Twitter. This happened in February. Should I write to the CEO and let them know the recruiter was so rude and unprofessional? And I said, you know, you could do it, but I don't think so. Your flame, your power, your essence, your whatever, your burning flame is so important and precious. It is so easy as a job seeker when we feel maybe disempowered, we feel um, more subject, more vulnerable, subject to being dissed. And, and we put ourselves out there and that's hard. I used an analogy earlier about auditioning for, 
for operas because it's the same thing. It's like, here's me, here's how I sound, and it's just right here. Like, you get to judge it. I'm putting myself in your hands. And it's the same thing when you go on a job interview. And so we can be more prone to say, this is a wrong that I'm going to write. Because I don't feel super powerful in the world right now, but I can tell the CEO that this recruiter was a jerk. You can totally do it, but I don't think that grows your flame. Because there are always going to be barking dogs along your path. That's not mine. I read it somewhere. I don't remember where. Barking dogs along your path, and you don't have to stop and bark back at them. That's not your mission. Who is the CEO? Why would they deserve you? Look at the recruiter they hired. Are, are, they, are they someone worth your time? Now, they could be useful in your path. They could be a great teacher one day because they got you back at a better place where you say, no, I don't want to go for that kind of job in that kind of company. That actually helped me, that very bruising experience, because it woke me up. Why am I applying for this type of job or this type of company or whatever? And, and these people do become teachers years later, we realize, because they nudge us back on our path. But to try to teach this guy, he's not looking to you for guidance. I don't think, I think it's kind of impotent. I don't think it grows your flame at all to do that. You have to decide for yourself. Here's the thing. Your path is so important and there's nobody focused on it but you, nor, nor will they be, other than maybe dear, dear friend or you know, family member, love interests, right? It's your path. It's your mission. It's your whatever. It's your way in your life. And so getting off of it to say, I need to teach this guy a lesson. That's, you know, that's a justice mindset. We all get there. At times we get frustrated, but you can say, you know what? I just believe something, laws of the universe, karma, whatever is going to take care of this. I don't think this is my thing to do, to go and you know, sort of impotently scream into the wind and tell the CEO, your recruiter was a jerk. Um, I don't think they get that far off the mark, um, you know, by being totally focused on what they, sh on what they should be focused on. We know the state in recruiting is not, is not great. It's not in a good place. So, um, yeah, I don't think that's your best bet. Although I understand the temptation to, you know, get aggravated and do something about it. I do understand that frustration and that temptation. You know, that's a very natural thing. I was dissed and I want to let somebody know about it, but you let all of us know about it on Twitter. And we're saying, you know what? We are so behind you. That guy never deserved you. The CEO doesn't deserve your counsel. Look at it that way. They're just at a different place on their path and you see things differently and maybe in a more evolved way, but you know, I don't know if you're going to convince this person, the CEO, it's even worth your time. You've got a beautiful, beautiful path to follow. So yeah, that's the story. This is episode 14 coming to a close of the Truth About Work podcast. If you have a question for me, uh, send it to support at humanworkplace.com and I'll try to answer it uh, on Twitter or LinkedIn or in our blog or an upcoming episode of the Truth About Work podcast.